Translating God, a youthscape podcast dedicated to exploring how young people understand and respond to the Christian story. Welcome to the Translating God podcast. In this episode, we're going to be looking a little bit more into the data. And I wanted to talk to you quickly first, Dr. Lucy Moore, uh, and bring to you a little bit of a critique. This data can feel quite focused on young people's, well, the negative stuff, like what's wrong, the problem. Is that a fair critique to bring to data like this? Mm, I think it is. And it's something that we really wrestle with, actually. So you'll notice that there's quite a lot of data in here that is about... Uh, young people's poor mental health, for example. And we felt that was really important to include because it is a really big and real story around young people's lives. But we we intentionally went looking for data that would show us in a more in a more neutral way what has changed that isn't just about what's gone wrong for them, but it's just different. And it's quite hard to find it. And uh, one of my reflections is that that's because a lot of the time people who commission research and the research that gets coverage in the media tends to be from organisations that are fixing a problem. So yes, of course, <laughs> they, they need, fund it. They yes. need to evidence it. So yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of the time, the questions that we ask when we do these polls are um, are about they are about things like anxiety or about knife crime or about um, body image or or confidence or self esteem because we sort of know that these things need public awareness because we want to fix them and we need people to understand that they're an issue and then we need to get money uh-huh. but the problem is we're sort of left with this skewed view of young people as like a massive basket of problems. Yeah, problems that need to be solved. You can find anything on tea drinking or like the kinds of snacks. I I suppose that would be loaded in like sugar content and salt content. There's just no, for some reason, no one is paid loads of money to go out for polling that says, and tell me, does participating in TikTok dances increase your endorphins often or always or only sometimes? Because I know that there'll be a bunch of teenagers that'll be like, I feel so much better when I learn Uh that dance and I share it with my friends. But for some reason, that's not the data that ends up, you know, served up to youth workers. But the reason that we need to acknowledge that is because there are a few things in here that are not just about like young people's lives are going to hell in a handbasket, which is a thing that we tend to as adults mm, be afraid of and yes. worried about. And that's one thing that if we <gasps> measured on a trend would probably never change. <laughs> yes. But um, there's a few things I wanted to highlight that are just a bit different. So one of them is about young people's perception of the climate. Now, this could be seen as something that's difficult and negative because we know it's a genuine threat. Mm. But in 2017, we saw this huge leap in consciousness amongst young people around climate change. And I think it was it was just before the time that, that we had Greta Thunberg's kind of uh, school strikes yes, for the yeah. future and some of that. But it was it was around a time where the, there was growing public consciousness. And so young people, they weren't leading the charge, but their consciousness was massively changing around that time. And we did a piece of research burning down the house that showed that young people in churches were really concerned about this and they really wanted churches to do something. And they had they had quite sophisticated theological justifications for why the church should be involved. So it wasn't just that they had sat in lessons and were told we should all be doing something about the climate. They were the ones in our survey going, we're told we're meant to steward the earth. We're told we're meant to care for our neighbour and our neighbour is not the person who looks like us. And so we should be doing something about climate change. And so I look at that chart uh, and, and I think I take a few things from it. One is it pops the kind of, that kind of... Um, 
bubble, that stereotype that young people are these are these heroes of climate action, mm-hmm. all of them that have been way out in front before any of us, and we they're going to one they're the ones that are going to save us because their consciousness just changed at the same time as pretty much every, everybody else's. But it but it also shows us that they are conscious and particularly with burning down the house, if we pay attention to them, they're not saying, look to us to do it all. What they're saying is, can you lead, please, and give us opportunities to join in because we want to do this as churches. Does any of the data pick up on that sort of attitude to leadership? I think that's a great point that you make, that sometimes churches say, well, as long as you run an eco club, like then young people realise, oh, we're doing something. But, But you're saying something a bit more subtle in that. It's more... An entrenched thing around leadership, integrity, authority, trust. Like, does any of this data go hand in hand with that? Or is that something that, that really we're still yet to, yeah, to work the, it the out? Yeah, the trend data just shows us the number that believe that the climate change will affect the UK, that this is an issue not just out there, but for us. The burning down the house data gives us stuff mm. that begins to answer the question of what does that mean for young people in churches? And it is a nuanced thing because they are saying... I mean, I remember one of the young people in the video, the Burning Down the House video you can see online said, um, we want you to lead, but if you don't, we will. And so there was, um, this one person can't speak for a whole generation, but there was from a number of young people a sense of, uh, we want to do this together. And actually... This this is an intergenerational space of consensus. Often the media portrays yes, yes. portrays the idea that the young people have been sold out by older generations, but there is actually huge consensus across every generation about perception of climate change. And yeah. so this is a ripe opportunity for partnership. So let's not use narratives that break apart generations when we talk about climate change. Let's use collectivizing, um, partnering kinds of language that that don't position young people either as helpless victims or as the ones who are going to save us. Fantastic. How does that work with this next headline though? Because surely when it comes to hours and hours and hours of not only young people online gaming, but online watching other people gaming. Like Mm. if there's one thing that I think many adults scratch their head like, what is that world? It feels like young people's behaviour around gaming. So what is the data showing us for that? Yeah, I wanted to pick this one out as well, because again, it's not there's no value judgment associated no. with it. It's not that gaming is getting better or worse or young people are feeling better or worse about game. It's just a way that they're gaming that's different. So we, we've we seen a real shift over 10 years from gaming being something that you would do as a solo activity to something that is much more a social activity. And for young people and youth workers, you know that because the design of games is, is now so much more about um meeting with people, the multiple ways and different channels you can be talking at the same time that you're gaming, the ways that your friends are present on those platforms. But that's, I think, quite helpful for older people who may not participate in this to understand, because I think we've got this sort of legacy idea of gaming as being this slightly solo, slightly weird, slightly loner activity, which is, I think it's a hangover and it's absolutely not the case. And so I think this raises interesting questions related to the conversation we had last week, which was about young people being less likely to be out in person. So they are more likely to be alone and in their homes, but it doesn't necessarily mean they are alone. Yes, alone. They they could be socialising, talking to friends, gaming, uh, and spending a lot of time doing that. What, What implication does that have for youth work? What does that mean? Why am I raising it? I mean, 
I've got a question here. I, I would throw it out to youth workers who game themselves and do do that with young people. I'm really interested to understand from you, what is it in the ways that young people collaborate, compete, create together, fight with each other, like resolve things, how they communicate through gaming that we need to understand and we need to integrate into the ways that we see them? Because if we only ever see them in an in-person kind of group, say once a week, we lose touch with the multiple interesting ways that they are building their worlds. Like I'm just new to this. So like my daughter's only 10, so I'm at the very beginning of this, but she's got me into Minecraft and Mm. we're now, she like, she built a wall and we're on either side of the wall and we're having a build competition and I have to build my house and she'll be, she builds hers and then we get to look over the wall and see what each other have done. (laughs) If I hadn't gone into her world, I would have had no idea how playful it was, how creative, what it was possible that she was doing in there. And so in some ways, I just think this is an invitation for adults who are less familiar with this to ask questions that illuminate like, what is this? this world like for you what's the best of it rather than assume it's like I don't know something we just don't understand absolutely my my six-year-old son went around for a little play date to his little friend's house and managed to lose his friend's castle he'd spent absolute ages playing on Minecraft so my friend Nick was there with these two little crying boys age six trying to resolve a friendship because of what happened on them so I no, I think that's really interesting and I I would say I, I don't know what the answers are because I think so often in youth ministry my default is towards getting young people in person looking at each other chatting so this this does mark a shift in our own way of responding to young people as well. Some big questions here. Yeah. So, I mean, to give an example of stuff that's in the media at the moment, the metaverse, there is um, conversation at the moment around violence in the metaverse. So if you're a young person, what if you encounter somebody who comes and assaults you in some way and there's real concern Mm. about sexual assault and, and what that would mean? I think if if people if young people are gaming and they're having social interactions in that space all the time. We, if we think that God is at work mm. in young people's lives and through the, the, through them, then the kinds of questions we could be ha- asking them are about where have you where have you ever sensed the Holy Spirit at work in your it's in your interactions question. with people brilliant. online? Like when was the last time that something happened that made you feel like so alive and so energized when you were working with someone or fighting with them or gaming with them online? What brilliant. was that like for you? So. Just asking a question like that is probably something Brilliant. we don't tend to do, but we can. No, I love that. That's so responsive. So do keep in touch. Be part of this conversation with the Translating God podcast. Let us know how are you innovating conversations or finding there's just those connections in spaces. Maybe like me, you feel, actually, I don't really understand this stuff. This is an example of a trend or some patterns of behaviour young people that I just, I don't quite get it, but that's okay. We understand and we love the young people that we're working with. So what would these conversations look like? And the third Third one, um, this is a biggie and we touched on it a little bit last week around young people's relationships and being able to talk about consent and relationships and, and we raised, you raised the point Dr Lucy that through the, the data actually it's quite complex for young people because there are a range of other conversations around that particularly around gender identity that many young people feel ill-equipped to have or where are the safe spaces to have this. So what has been the trend in the last 10 years particularly around gender identity then? Yeah so I've included this one because um, I guess this conversation is about what young people bring as gifts, what's just in their culture, but also what we can what we can see about need because it does help us. It certainly has helped us as uh, Youthscape. We've used research over the over the 25, 30 years we've been going to suddenly go, oh, there's a huge increase in eating disorders. Is anyone producing resources mm. for Christian youth workers or, or whether it's whatever the thing is? 
Um, more and more young people are needing help with their gender identity. And, and so there's a chart in there that just demonstrates the huge increase in referrals to what, what's now closed, but was known as the Gender Identity Development Service. That, that was a very specialist clinic, which is now going to be replaced by a nationwide network of other clinics. But I think it really shows a shift um, from what was traditionally the profile of someone seeking help, which would have been um, a, a young person um, born male and seeking help for their gender identity when they were younger to uh, the profile now is far more likely to be a young person born female who is need seeking help around their gender identity and much older so an older adolescent that's that's saying something is going huge, on and, yeah. and we don't yet have the answer to that this is a tricky one for youth workers i think because none of us i don't think no. are gender specialists mm. when it comes to that level of therapeutic support but i do think the presence of a non-judgmental listening adult who's able to hold a little bit of that confusion or that concern or that need uh, wherever a young person is on their on their journey of understanding their own gender, that is incredibly powerful and every young person needs that. And if you can be that, if you can hold in your mind with any young person, they may, they may at this point, regardless of how they're presenting to you, they may not be clear mm. when it comes to how they feel about themselves and their gender and they may, they may need support or at least listening. We can all do that, I think. There are concerns raised by this as well, aren't there? That that it can be difficult to raise some of the questions that maybe are easier. So it's easy to ask why why are less young people out after nine pm? That's mm. interesting. It's difficult to raise the question why is the profile of the young person seeking help around gender identity moved from a younger yeah. m- born male to female? How do we? navigate that because obviously we don't want to fall into that well it's a phase or these just trends because that doesn't feel like it centers the well-being of a young person so what would be your way of how do you approach this and ask the right questions about that yeah well i'd have to talk about the the limits of my my knowledge in that because i'm a researcher rather than someone who's working with young people directly around this kind of stuff but um i think i think you're right that there's there's um, caution and openness and curiosity are probably the things that are helpful here. Yeah. So curiosity about um, not imposing on individual young people our assumptions about what might be driving it, but but listening and listening and listening and knowing that for all of us, our understanding of our own need and what has happened in our lives, that changes over the profile of a lifetime. So so we we have to retain constant openness to what is happening and what sense we make of it. So even if a young person thinks they've got total clarity in this moment of what, what's happening, accepting that but being open that that might change for them over, mm. over the coming years and, and, and that we don't necessarily have to fix fix the meaning with them um, at that time probably is going to be helpful for them to have long-term relationships where that meaning making is is open. Brilliant. And a wonderful reminder as we just end this episode that young people are a wonder to behold, not a problem to be solved Mm. and receiving this data as these are gifts to us as a church. If this is some of the trends, what we're seeing, what young people are experiencing, what they are a gift to us, aren't they, in our communities? Even the stuff that is challenging, we think we're not quite sure about the gaming stuff. That's my little takeaway from today. Oh my goodness. How is that a gift to the church? But I need to be curious about that. Ask some bigger questions. So next week, join us again where we're going to be asking questions about how might data like this help us to advocate for more resources in our church context, in schools, within our towns and our communities. So we'll see you next week for the next episode of the Translating God podcast. 